How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, it is my honor and delight to have Dr. Wayne Grudem back on the broadcast. Wayne Grudem resides in the Arizona area where he teaches at Phoenix Seminary, and he's a prolific author, writer, speaker, and I'm not going to go over your bio, Dr. Grudem, because we'll put that in the show notes, but I want to jump right into your town hall history. (laughs) Let's start with the first article you wrote for town hall, not the first one, but when you wrote an article, you were pro-Trump, and then you wrote an article, you were again Trump, and then you turned around and voted for Trump. So give us the 25-word kind of, how did Wayne Grudem change in his thinking and We'll get to where you are today, but I'm just, for our listeners' sake, to know a little bit about your own transparency on how you have viewed politics and this current presidential administration. Well, yes, Michael, we're going back to 2016, before Trump was first elected. In the summer of 2016, after he got the uh, Republican nomination, I believe it was, I wrote an article on Town Hall called Voting for Donald Trump or Why Voting for Donald Trump is a Morally Good Choice. And I wrote that in response to people who were thinking, This is a person who has not had a moral lifestyle. He's been married three times. He's boasted of infidelity in his marriage. He's very proud, not humble, according to biblical teachings. There were other objections, basically, to his personality and temperament. And yet I said, in spite of that, he's favoring good policies, conservative judges who will interpret the law and the Constitution according to its original meaning, lower taxes, economic growth, stronger military, religious freedom, pro-life, definitely in favor of restrictions on abortion, legal restrictions, in many ways, very conservative. And so I said, we're voting between two flawed candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But the question is, what is the result going to be for the nation? And it seems to me that in voting for either candidate, you're not endorsing all of the characteristics of that candidate, but you're saying that he would be the best choice for the nation. It's morally wrong to lie about a candidate. It's morally wrong to stuff ballot boxes or steal ballots. Mm. But it isn't morally wrong to vote for an imperfect candidate. There's nothing evil about doing that. You're seeking good for the nation. So that was the first article, and it got a huge response when it was published on townhall.com. Then, around the beginning of October, these Access Hollywood video came out with Trump saying some very offensive things about uh, treatment of women. Mm -hmm. And so that troubled me a lot, and I didn't want to ignore that. And I published an article called Moral character of the two candidates or something like that. And I called on Donald Trump to withdraw from the election at that late date, but he didn't listen to me. (laughs) I don't know if (laughs) you knew about it, but it was amazing where no one had been interested in my positive endorsement of Trump from the secular major media. I had more attention when I changed my endorsement and called on him to withdraw than I ever had in my life. Oh, Washington Post, some major news networks, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, mm-hmm. and some Christian outlets. You well, know, evangelical theologian withdraws support for Trump. That was a big deal. Let me inject. It was October 9th, 2016, Trump's moral character and the election. 
And that's when you said that you strongly urge him to withdraw from the election. Right. Well, that got a lot of attention. I didn't take any interviews from any of those national media outlets, even though they all ran stories about it. But after four or five days, I began to think what I'm doing is, in fact, helping Hillary Clinton become the president. And that was an even worse consequence as far as I was concerned. I thought it would bring destructive policies and procedures to the nation. So I wrote a third article saying something like this, if you don't like either candidate, vote for Trump's policies. And that's what happened with many people. They voted for Trump's policies, even though they weren't happy with his personality. And I think that was good for the nation. I think it was God's blessing on the nation. Romans 13.1 says that every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So I think it's without question that Romans 13.1 teaches that President Trump has been put in office by God for a purpose. Now, the question is, has he been put in office for judgment, like Nebuchadnezzar was brought his armies against Israel to bring them into exile, carry them off to exile? That was God establishing a ruler for judgment on a nation, not for good. Or was President Trump put in office by God for blessing for the nation, as Cyrus, king of Persia, was put in office to allow the Jewish people to go back to their homeland and return from exile to bring blessing to the nation. Let me interrupt you on those two, because I was actually going to ask you about those two historical figures, because between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, God is orchestrating, I often use my hands broadly and say, you know, the sovereignty and providence of God is well above us. We don't see it and understand it. He uses flawed, sinful, in those cases, enemies of Israel for good outcome. And you got to wonder, fast forward to Christ's time with Rome, which essentially is occupying arguably the largest world power on the planet. Yes, it was. they are allowing the Jews to carry out their festivals, their rituals, and this rebel, this rebellious guy named Jesus of Nazareth comes along and is, you know, turning the carts over, and they don't know what to do with him. And yet that's all part of God's orchestrated plan. And then post-Christ, life, death, burial, resurrection, Rome is still in control. And for a period of time, Christianity enjoyed, quote-unquote, the protection of Rome, correct? Right. And Paul, of course, appealing to Caesar to protect himself from being unjustly put to death by the Jewish opponents who followed him, who attacked him in Jerusalem and followed him to Caesarea to try to argue against him. But Paul appealed to the The Roman government authority to rescue himself from enemies. And so the Roman legal system, the Roman roads, the Roman postal system, the Roman laws protecting peace and order in the empire were used to advantage by the Christians, even though the empire in itself and a number of the emperors were hostile to the Christian faith. Yes, yes. So I just bring that up because I think one of the issues I also want to ask you about is the lack of a biblical theological framework for evangelicals today in a situation like this, which isn't a, I wouldn't say a top tier piece of theology, but it's certainly a pragmatic piece of theology to understand we live in a world, if you want to look at Augustine, the city of God, city of man, we live in two different realities. And yet these government authorities are never going to be perfectly card-carrying, evangelical, Roman Catholic, whatever moniker you want to put on them, the way we would like, quote-unquote, you know, a person who's Roman Catholic would want that, a person who's evangelical would want that, a person who's filling in the blank. My point simply being, let's a sidebar, but help folks 
Dr. Grudem, understand this is nothing new. And we've always lived in a fallen culture with fallen leaders, and yet God in his kindness sometimes allows Christians to prosper and live in peace, even though we have some pretty difficult leaders and complicated leaders. Yes, this is the question I would put to Bible-believing Christians in this election season. If you agree that Romans 13.1 says those government authorities that exist have been instituted by God, then you think you have to agree that God put President Trump in office, and, it, and it's God's doing. Now, the question is, did he put Trump in office for blessing to the nation or for judgment to the nation? Mm. Then I go through a list of things. I don't mean to take too much time on this, Michael, but judges who are subject to the law and subject to the Constitution, as opposed to judges who invent their own laws and invent their own constitutional provisions that don't exist in the Constitution. Well, it seems to me that's a blessing that Trump has brought. Historic tax cuts and deregulation. 25,000 pages of regulations canceled, giving much more freedom to the American people. Building a stronger U.S. military, the strongest military in history. That looks like blessing to me. Protect us against threats from the Soviet Union, or from Russia, rather, and from previous Soviet Union, and from China and elsewhere. Protecting life, protecting unborn babies. President Trump has been the strongest pro-life president we've had. Standing with Israel, negotiating a historic agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and now Bahrain, building a border wall over 200 miles now to secure our border, advancing religious freedom in campus, on university campuses and elsewhere, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, defeating ISIS, standing up to China and Russia. I could go on and on in action after action. Michael, I have a thick file folder of actions that seem to me to be blessing and bring greater freedom, greater protection of the rule of law, greater prosperity, greater well-being to the American people. That looks like blessing to me. Now there's an objection that comes up, but I'll pause there before I Well, yeah, it. and that goes back to Cyrus and to Nebuchadnezzar and to Rome in general. There were good things that happened for the believer, and there were also consequences that affected the believer in bad ways. Just as a promotion here, you also put an article out, 30 Good Things President Trump Has Done for America. It was posted on the 24th of August, not that long ago, but that's a town hall article as well. People can read. You ticked off a lot of these, but some of these, and this again, for me as a pastor and as a person interfacing with younger people in particular, Wayne, all the things you listed don't seem to have traction with the social justice mind, with the younger mind. I'm just thinking, let's just talk about the life and judges for a moment. When you and I were younger, the two biggest issues for Christians tended to be the sanctity of life and the protection of marriage. Now, Roe v. Wade dismantled the sanctity of life. Obergefell has dismantled the heterosexual monogamous lifelong marriage. And so now we have what I would call morally relativistic issues we're talking about. They're still important but they're not life and they're not marriage. And in some respects, I refer to those as our father's Oldsmobile. Those were the issues you and I thought were you know, paramount when it came to politics. Where does a candidate stand on life? Where does a candidate stand on marriage? Those issues now, while maybe Roe v. Wade will be jousted and maybe things will change, but that said, 
Our climate today is more concerned about Black Lives Matter, about social justice, about, you know, whether Antifa is a real group or not. You know, our language is parsed. I'm jumping around a bit, but the things you've listed, you and I hold dear, and let's say many Bible-believing Christians would, but for some reason it's not resonating, Wayne, with, I don't want to be unkind or uh, stereotypical, but it's not resonating with a lot of younger men and women. There are a number of factors that play into that, Michael, but one certainly is the incredible bias of the mainstream media, NBC, CBS, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC. Just to take one example, these historic agreements bringing peace in the Middle East with Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Bahrain normalizing relationships, and I think more agreements to come, those are history-changing, world-changing Unbelievable, events yeah. That changed the whole course of events in the Middle East with almost complete silence from the media. Michael, I mentioned in one of the articles that I wrote that the Media Research Center tracked the evening news broadcasts in June and July from three networks, NBC, CBS, ABC. And they counted the number of negative statements made about President Trump and the number of negative statements made about Joe Biden, who was by then the presumptive candidate of the Democrats. And their count showed that for every negative statement made about Joe Biden, there were 158 negative statements made about President Trump, a ratio of one to 158. That's incredible media bias. That's just propaganda level bias. People who get the news from these mainstream media, of course, they're going to have negative impressions of Donald Trump if all they hear is negative comments about him. Do you think, and I agree with you, and I've also read some stats about even the ratios of the kind of coverage given. So if it's the Arab Emirates cord, whatever we're going to call it, <laughs> the time spent on that was minuscule in these outlets, right. much less right. whether they covered it or not. But that said, and this is a question I ask young men and women, where do you get your news? And strikingly, exactly. they don't watch any of the aforementioned mainstream what you would categorize or I would categorize as liberal or biased media, they vilify Fox. They dismiss Breitbart. Drudge Report has changed. It used to be one of the biggest aggregates on America's soil, and now it's become something else. So where do they get their information? It used to be Stephen Colbert or Bill Maher or Comedy Central, but now it seems to be social media snippets. And they follow whether it's Twitter or even Snapchat. And now Instagram has become politicized. I don't think the younger men and women use Facebook much. So again, give me some help. Those media outlets or those sources of news do not provide a format that lends itself to a thoughtful, reasoned, careful argument and discussion. It's more uh, lending itself to short statements of approval or condemnation without supporting facts and arguments. One of the little measures I use and in context is when people like something that's posted within seconds of it's being posted is evidence they've not listened to or read what I just posted. Because <laughs> <laughs> if it goes out and 30 likes show up in the first three seconds, I know they didn't read it or listen to the interview. <laughs> Michael, I want to go back to whether President Trump's presidency has been a sign of God's blessing or God's okay. judgment. The objection that might be brought against what I said, that it seems to me these are signs of God's blessing on the nation. The objection that might be brought is, but he's brought so much divisiveness to the mm -hmm. country. And my response is, who is responsible for the divisiveness? 
it's not conservatives, but the political left, mainly the Democrats, that support sanctuary cities, which hinder enforce enforcement of immigration laws rather than changing the laws through the political process. It's the political left that on day one of President Trump's presidency, on the inauguration day, they were burning cars in streets, blocking streets, blocking sidewalks, attempting to prevent people from even attending the inauguration in Washington and launched the resistance in spite of the fact that Romans 13 says whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. They weren't just opposing as an opposing political party, opposing the Republican agenda. They were resisting everything the Republicans were trying to do under President Trump's leadership. And then they have instigated shouting at Trump administration officials and friends in restaurants until they're driven out of restaurants and their families are terrified in their own homes with demonstration outside their homes. They've disrupted congressional hearings with shouted protests. I don't know if you noticed, if you watched any of the uh, Judiciary Committee hearings with Attorney General William Barr. Yes. But it was a kangaroo court. Yes. It was supposed to be a hearing where he would answer questions, and they kept launching accusation after accusation against him. When he would get three words out of his mouth attempting to answer, they would say, I reclaim my time. I reclaim yeah. my time. And wouldn't let him answer. It was, it was orchestrated. It was, horrible. it was political theater. Yeah. Well, yes, but that's what goes on in Russia. That's what goes on in China. That's what goes on in Cuba. That's what goes on in North Korea. Show trials without any equal representation or adherence to the rule of law. But that's the mindset of the political left. And that's the source of, I would say, 90% of the divisiveness within the nation. Now, President Trump doesn't help that with his instinct to fight back. But on the other hand, wouldn't we rather have someone who fights back than someone who passively, meekly rolls over and just lets hostile opponents dominate the conversation with their hostile actions. So it's not conservatives, but the political left who have organized mass protests to prevent conservative speakers from even being heard on university campuses. It's an atmosphere where in many previous years of political campaigns, I have put a bumper sticker on my car with regard to the candidate that I favor, or I've worn a well, many years ago a button supporting my favorite candidate. I am really afraid to do that right, so, today yeah, because yeah. of the fear of being attacked or by my car being keyed or something like that. That's not President Trump's fault. That is the fault of the left-wing political movement in the United States, the political left, that has taken to unlawful and immoral activities to attempt to impose their will by imposing force rather than reason and argument on the American people. Mm -hmm. And it's a dangerous trend. Well, in some respect, they don't have other options. There's not a reasoned argument. There's not a civility that Barack Obama at one point for a moment in time talked about bringing civility back to the political realm. And that lasted for about 90 minutes. And yet at the same time, you know, when you see Black Lives Matter, I remember watching the Instagram accounts go with the black square immediately and I thought, you know, this is an identity politics issue. You can't just knee-jerk because something like this has happened. I thought we still believed in, you know, innocence before, you know, proven guilty. But yet the vitriol of, and again, I don't mean to be stereotypical, Wayne, but it just seems like young men and women are so easily persuaded to be angry, to call the race card, social justice card. It's name-calling. It's not argument. Yeah. 
And then again, you're not only vilified if you put a Trump sticker on your car, if you don't put a Black Lives Matter square up, or if you don't come out and call for, you know, say her name, say her name or whatever, all of a sudden, you know, you're the enemy and you're going to be vilified. It's a hostile atmosphere and it's promoted by the political left, not conservatives, not President Trump. But Michael, can I go on to another topic? You I, certainly may. This morning I was reading my Bible and the verse that came to mind and I looked up was Psalm 11.3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Mm-hmm. And this has to do with the Supreme Court. Uh, let me go back to 1973, Roe versus Wade, where there is nothing in the 14th Amendment which specifies a right to abortion. 14th Amendment says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The word abortion does not occur there. And when that 14th Amendment was passed, just after the Civil War, it was to guarantee voting rights and other rights and privileges to freed slaves and to be sure that every person in the United States had full rights. But I think it was 35 or 38 states and territories at that time, all of them had laws prohibiting or restricting abortion. And no one thought anything in that 14th Amendment had anything to do with abortion. But liberals on the Supreme Court decided that there was a right to abortion in those words, saying that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Say nothing of the fact that the unborn child was deprived of life through abortion. But they invented a right to abortion out of thin air. And so conservatives, realizing that, realized that that was imposed on the nation by the will of the nine judges on the Supreme Court, who had never been elected, and the people in the states had never voted for this right to abortion. So we started out, many of us in the conservative political movement, saying we need to elect a president and senators who will appoint Supreme Court justices who will not invent things and say that they belong to the Constitution when they're not really there. And so for many years, since 1973, what is that, 27, 47 years, we've been working to elect a president and to elect senators who would approve conservative judges and justices in the Supreme Court who would not make up laws but would be subject to the law, not think themselves above the law, and invent new constitutional provisions. We're getting very close to that with a 5-4 majority of originalist judges on the Supreme Court. And finally, ready to achieve the goal of justices who will no longer impose newly invented laws of their own making and say that they belong to the Constitution when they're not there. And this would have to do with Roe v. Wade, but it also has to do with the Obergefell decision imposing same-sex marriage on the nation, which the nation did not vote to approve, but the Supreme Court just said it was there. And again, the 14th Amendment, but it's not there. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one, and that goes way back to decisions excluding religious expression and prayer from public schools. That was imposed on our country by the Supreme Court, not by the actions of Congress or any of the state legislatures or governors. It was imposed against the will of the majority of the people by unelected judges. Now, those are three examples of saying that something's in the Constitution where it's not. Uh A number of years ago, I had dinner with the chairman of the subcommittee on the Constitution in the U.S. House of Representatives, and I said to him, the overreach of the Supreme Court in imposing newly invented laws of their own making on the country, apart from justification in the text of the Constitution, is the biggest single problem facing the United States. And I had various ideas of how to correct the problem. And he said to me, the only way he thought it could be corrected was by appointing new judges to the Supreme Court, new justices, 
who would not impose their will on the people by inventing laws, but would be subject to the original meaning of the words of the Constitution. So that has happened over time. And with Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, mm-hmm. Gorsuch we have now a 5-4 thin majority on the Supreme Court of Conservatives, but Justice John Roberts, the Chief Justice, is an unreliable conservative vote. Now with the nomination of Amy, Amy Coney Con- Barrett mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court, with, I expect she will be confirmed within the next few weeks by the end of October. We'll have a 6-3 majority of judges who will not impose their will on the nation and will not invent new laws out of their own imagination that don't exist in the Constitution, but will, like everybody else, no one is above the law and they won't be above the law or above the Constitution. So that has been a process that has taken 47 years to reach the successful conclusion of. What is the response of the Democrats? Well, we'll plan to pack the Supreme Court by adding six more liberal justices, giving a nine to six liberal majority to the Supreme Court, and effectively making the Supreme Court a branch of the Congress and the will of the Democratic majority in Congress, rubber stamping the actions of the legislature What that does is it destroys the basic structure of the United States of America as it has existed since our country was founded, because the historic position of the Supreme Court has been to say when the Constitution is violated, the historic position of the Supreme Court has been a check and balance so that there's a division of powers and the Congress and the president can't impose anything that they want on the nation when what they want is contrary to the Constitution. The Supreme Court has been a check on the power of the legislature, the legislative branch, the Congress, and has held it in restraint, Mm -hmm. restrained it from violating the Constitution. However, if the Democrats pack the Supreme Court, it becomes, in effect, another branch of the legislature and has no effective function in checking the will of the legislature to violate the Constitution. Let me inject, because a couple things that... Again, I want to be very careful, but I think we also need to educate our listeners, our friends, because you rattled off a host of things that you and I would track with quickly, but perhaps not folks that aren't careful about history. Number one, you said 47 years in the making for these Supreme Court justices. I'm doing the math. We're 244 years old as a country this past July. And so (laughs) with that in mind, you know, for uh, what is that, an eighth of the time we've been trying to do this. Secondly, help our listeners understand constitutionalists versus what we would call activist judges. Because I think this is missed on a lot of people. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing was remarkable to watch the accolades of what she accomplished as a woman, as a feminist, glass ceilings, etc. All of which, you know, are laudable. But I was, and of course, you don't you know, rejoice in a person's death. That's not ever intended. But I was dumbfounded, Wayne. I mean, here's a woman that was pro-abortion. Here's a woman that was admittedly so, an interpretational, you know, let's reform the Constitution. It's a living document. And was it the famous comment that Justice Scalia said that she would be remembered more for her, you know, reformation and changes than he would for being a constitutionalist? And I just fear, Wayne, that people don't understand this. The the Constitution, oh, so what? Number one, they haven't read it. Number two, they don't studied it. Number three, they don't understand the three branches of government you just rattled off and how they are checks and balances unique on the planet. So give me a primer. Go back a little bit, Doc, and help us understand 
because again, you and I are on the same page, but I think we need to help folks that perhaps haven't, you know, studied it or paid much attention to it. Okay, so here's the problem that was faced by the founders of the United States of America. They needed to have a strong central government that would be able to govern the nation effectively. But the Articles of Confederation under which the nation began to function in 1776 did not make for a strong enough central government to effectively function to govern the nation. So they put together a constitution. And the constitution of the United States has been called by many people perhaps the second greatest document in the history of the world after the Bible. And its wisdom was in this. It gave the federal government enough power to function, but it divided power among various branches of government so that no tyrant could obtain too much power and become a despot, an evil ruler, as King George III had in England over the colonies in America. So the challenge was to give it enough power to function, but also to restrain its power so the power would not be concentrated in any one person or group of persons. So they didn't give the greatest power in the country to the president. They didn't give the greatest power in the country to the Congress. They didn't give the greatest power in the country to the Supreme Court or the judicial system. But they put above all of those a constitution that said, beyond these boundaries, you cannot go. And then the power was divided between the judges and the courts, the judicial system, the legislative system, and the executive in addition, the power is divided between national, state, and local governments, all of which then check, provide a safeguard against any one group becoming too powerful. Because the founders recognized what I think to be a biblical truth, and that is that human beings are imperfect. They're inherently sinful and that they become too easily corrupted by power and the attraction of power. Mm-hmm. So the Constitution is what has protected the nation, kept it as such a great nation, for, what did you say, 244 years now. So we have the three branches. We have an executive branch, we have a legislative branch, and we have a judicial branch. Right, and, and who makes the laws? Correct. The legislature makes the laws. The House and Senate pass laws and the president signs them. The judiciary exists then to deal with debates and disputes about the law, its application, but they are not to make law. They are not to reinterpret the law there to clarify it and to make a judgment on it. The executive branch sits in the unique capacity of being the one who leads that discussion, hopefully, and who also enforces the laws. Right, right. So, and again, I just, I think it's important because I think a lot of Americans, Wayne, don't even understand this, the function of the three branches of government. And when we have activist judges, we use that phrase, people to understand, they're not to write law. They're not to inject their personal feelings about law. They are to interpret the law as it was written when the case is brought all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is no small accomplishment. When it's brought to the Supreme Court, they are to interpret it constitutionally based on case law and precedent, correct? Right. So the essence of that is, Michael, and you said correctly, judges should not make laws. According to our system of government, judges interpret laws and apply laws but they don't make law. And that's been the problem when judges impose on the nation an exclusion of prayer from public schools, exclusion of Ten Commandments from public displays and Mm -hmm. property, Mm -hmm. and exclusion of restrictions on abortion, or they impose on a nation same-sex marriage. These things have not been passed by any legislature or any Congress signed by any president. 
their judges making new laws, and that's destroying the foundations of democracy as has existed in the United States for 244 years. And so if the Democrats win this election and win control of the Senate, and then the Senate has the authority to expand the number of judges on the Supreme Court, then the foundations will be destroyed because then we've lost the ability to rein in government and have it subject to the Constitution as originally written. It will instead be government by liberal congressmen and when they violate the Constitution, it will still be justified by Supreme Court justices who will agree with the new laws restricting freedom of speech, restricting freedom of religion, etc., restricting freedom to own guns. Well, and if I can interrupt for a second, yes. caveat, when you read Psalm 11, verse 3, I opened my Bible there, and I had written in the margin, USA, November 2008. <laughs> <laughs> That was the election of President Obama. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. So let's talk a bit about Obergefell. And one of the things that is nuanced, and correct me, was it Justice Stevens who said the passage of Obergefell is not going to be about same-sex marriage. It's going to be about religious freedom. Because once you say civilly, you can have a same-sex marriage or some hybrid definition of that, which will certainly continue to be debated. Can we have polyamorous? Can we have, you know, more than two people in a marriage, right. etc.? But what he said, if I remember correctly, was when it comes to religious freedom, meaning can those churches and groups who don't believe that have the freedom to say no? And we saw it acted out anecdotally and, you know, bake the cake or make the flower arrangement or whatever. But it seemed that was an interesting case for the justices to discuss. And they didn't even talk about that in their ruling. They made a law effectively without going through this process. And now let's say some church in some very liberal area in some very liberal state or district the pastor says, I'm not going to perform that service. Next thing you know, he's hauled into court. This will happen. Or if he wants to preach on Romans 1, which uh, mm. teaches that homosexual conduct is immoral. Mm -hmm. And if the restrictions in, already in Canada are any indication, or the restrictions in some European countries like Sweden, and we've seen some threats to freedom of speech and freedom of religion in England as well, if those are any pattern, we can expect that a number of things will happen that LGBT rights, same-sex marriage rights, transgender rights will be imposed on Christian colleges and seminaries where they would have to admit same-sex couples. Well, to and that's already happening. There's a Christian college you and I are aware of where a student wanted to live in a housing that wasn't his genetic. Biological gender. Yeah, and that thing was handled very interestingly, but all that to say, and we don't know how much this is happening in policy meetings and in faculty, or, you know, in college campuses meetings that we don't ever hear about. But my point is, again, this is where I have such a heartburn for what people don't understand is we are, and I think you used the language, you know, you're voting for an, not immoral, what was the way you said it, an immoral candidate. I often say if JFK and MLK have been alive during a period of social media, we would have seen the same kinds of things that we're seeing today. But because social media is such a flash paper way of communicating information, whether it's misinformation or not, and it goes, quote, viral, I hate the expression, but it goes viral without any substantiation, without any credibility, 
and then people believe that. If we knew all the dirt about JFK and MLK, the same kinds of things could have been said and done during those days. But we're bad at our history. We're revisionist mentally. We opine for those days. We opine for the good old days. And all of our candidates we have elected are sinful men and women. Michael, I want to veer off topic a little bit, but just say, well, I'm going picking up a thread we had earlier. What concerns me is if we have Joe Biden elected in a Democratic Senate and more justices added to the Supreme Court, what can happen is Christian bakers would be forced to bake a cake celebrating same-sex marriage against their conscience or driven out of business. Photographers would be forced to take pictures celebrating a same-sex marriage or be driven out of business by excessive fines. Florists would be forced to make flower arrangements and artistic creations celebrating same-sex marriage or be driven out of business. These are artistic professionals, creative professionals, and art carries a message. And it would be government compelling speech, compelling agreement with the same-sex agenda. And well, I believe that was Justice Stevens' comment. That's what he was concerned about. And if I, the problem arises. And I think he voted for Obergefell. But his point was it's going to be how you manage this going forward, what true religious freedom will look like. And you've articulated the pragmatics of it. I mean, it even goes down so far as the church staffing. You and I have discussed this before, how many mainline churches, they haven't abdicated. They've embraced the idea of LGBTQ, whether it's staff, pastors, you know, you and I've talked about egalitarian v. complementarian for a decade now, and we lost that war in the mainline church, and so we've seen what's happened. And, you know, I've got peer. I watch just a nuance in their language. It may be back to the I'm afraid to put a Trump sticker on my car because it would be keyed, like you said. But the way they nuance their language about loving and embracing and understanding. And I'm going, Wayne, what's happened to us that we're coddling sin? And I'm not saying we go around judging and yelling and screaming at people. But what's happened that we haven't been able to kindly and lovingly say? That's sin. And Christ calls us. Yeah. Let me mention some other areas of loss of religious freedom. Can Christian colleges have professors that teach that homosexual conduct is morally wrong or that abortion is morally wrong? Or will that result in government penalties? Can a business say we're not going to pay for insurance coverage for sex change surgery? Or will that be discrimination, unlawful discrimination against transgender people? Can sports teams prevent biological males who claim to be female by their gender Mm. identity be excluded from competing on women's sports teams? Or will that be thought to be unlawful discrimination? Can Christian publishers publish books questioning the moral rightness of homosexual conduct or transgender conduct? Or will that be unlawful discrimination? Will doctors and nurses and medical professionals be required to participate in abortions contrary to their conscience? because that's discrimination against abortion rights. There are more examples than that, but, oh, counselors? What if someone comes to a counselor and says, I have these homosexual desires, but I would desire to live a heterosexual life. I believe homosexual conduct is wrong. Can a counselor well, uh, and let me interrupt. person, this, or will that be? This is already happening. You and I know seminaries that will remain unnamed where faculty are already moving to this language about, you know, you can have a same-sex attraction. That's the way God made you. You have to live celibate lives. I'm going, where did we get here? How did the frog in the kettle happen? You know, that we have nuanced these discussions, Wayne, to a loving environment. 
you know, we have to love people. We have to embrace them. Well, you know, I often use the illustration, and I'm resoundingly criticized for it. I could arguably go out and say I'm a womanizer. I think women are beautiful. I love women. I think God made me this way. I'm sorry, Cindy. I'm going to have as many consensual relationships with other women as I want because that's the way I'm made. No, I made a vow over 40 years ago to one woman, and in God's great kindness, she's been faithful to me and I to her. And there's a thing called self-control, and there's a thing called the Holy Spirit's control. <laughs> right? Right. You put your finger on the heart of the differences between the two political parties, or one of them. That is, it began with a clear divide over the abortion question. And the abortion question was fueled at base by, on the one side, a desire for unlimited, unrestrained sexual activity, no moral constraints put on it whatsoever. That was the abortion, that was what's driving the abortion, pro-abortion lobby, and that's what's driving the pro-homosexual lobby. It's saying there is no such thing as God-given moral constraints on sexual activity, whereas the Bible teaches that marriage between a man and a woman is the only legitimate place for human sexual activity to occur. Let's change a little bit, and let me ask you, how do you keep your hope and how would you encourage? Well, one thing that I often bring up in these discussions with my friends who want to, you know, they want my opinion like I want yours, is I say you have to step back a bit. Ensconced Democrats are not going to change their vote. There'll be some outliers, let's say police unions and whatnot. Ensconced Republicans are going to typically vote their party. Ensconced Democrats going to vote their party. The so-called libertarian, the so-called undecided voter. It's at, what, three, maybe 6% of the popular vote at tops. So all this vitriol, all this campaigning, the billions of dollars, the social media, you know, forest fires, were going after the so-called undetermined, undecided middle voter. How do you keep perspective? How do you encourage people when they want to throw their hands up, they don't want to vote, or they want to say, well, the Democrats are more loving or... The Republicans are too mean, or it's all about wealth. I mean, you have to steer somehow away from the 30 good things the president's done because they're not reading, Wayne. They're not listening, Wayne. So how do we, number one, how do we personally keep hope as Christians? And number two, how do we help other people without becoming, you know, vitriolic and combative? A couple of things, Michael. First of all, as I explained earlier, it seems to me quite clear that God gave President Trump to us as a blessing to the nation. That says nothing about his own spiritual life. I don't know what his heart is, but he's done good for the nation day after day, year after year. I don't think that the task that God entrusted to President Trump and the conservative Republican leadership is completed. And so I'm still trusting in God that he will allow President Trump to have another four years to complete the beneficial changes in the courts and the economy in government regulations and in international relations and immigration and securing the border and religious freedom and protection of life, protection of marriage, all those things, I think they are partially completed tasks. God gave us President Trump as a blessing to complete those tasks. And I am still trusting God that he will give us President Trump for another four years so those tasks can be more fully completed. That's number one. That's what gives me hope because the most high rules over the kingdom of men gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men, says Daniel. Mm. So the election outcome is in God's hands. Then as far as the importance of voting, I would say that we have a unique privilege in the history of the world in that we belong to a nation that in a broad sense is a democracy, in that the people's vote 
is what rules over the nation. And so I would say to every Christian out there, God has given you a stewardship responsibility. You've got a tiny slice of the authority to rule over the nation when you vote. And there's a responsibility then to affect the outcome of the election in a way that you think will be best for the nation. If you don't use that, you're not using your stewardship to influence the outcome of the election. Even whether your candidate wins or loses, the margin of victory or the margin of defeat is still significant for the subsequent political context that occurs in the country. So your vote is always going to be important. If you don't use that stewardship, that responsibility, that ability that God has entrusted to you, I think you're being unfaithful. It's like burying your talent in the ground rather than using it to bring about a beneficial result. And someone will say, well, I'm going to vote. I'm going to go and write in my pastor's name as candidate for president, or I'm going to write in my husband's name or my wife's name. I'm going to vote. That seems to me futile because it doesn't affect the outcome of the election. There are only two possible outcomes. We have Joe Biden as president and the Democratic policies that he'll bring and 4,000 presidential appointments that he'll put into place. Or we have Donald Trump as president and the policies that he will bring and 4,000 presidential appointments that he will put into place. It's the Trump package or the Biden package. There's no other choice. And if you go to the polls and write in a third-party candidate or your pastor's name, you're not affecting the outcome of the election between those two choices. And it seems to me like it's going through the motions but having no result. It'd be like when the offering plate comes by you in church, putting in an empty envelope, you're going through the motions. So it looks like you're doing something, but you're having absolutely no impact on the future of the church. Hmm. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. But. Well, I've never done that, but now you give me an idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I mean? No, totally. First Timothy, the elder statesman, Paul writing to the younger Timothy, maybe in his 40s, in chapter two, first of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that, purpose clause, we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I remember studying this at some length years ago. You know, God wants our prayers for those in authority. Now, I don't even in my own prayer life, as good or as paltry as it may be, I don't understand prayer. I don't understand outcomes. But what the scripture tells me is the purpose of this particular prayer is that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life, but he doesn't stop there, in all godliness and dignity. And then he goes on to you know say that he wants all men, he desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But I find it striking that the apostle, even during Rome's you know world power, is saying, pray for these people. Why? So that we might live tranquilly, quietly, in godliness and dignity. And I think this is one of the great misses when it comes to elections. We've become politicized as opposed to asking, how does a believer exist in any government? We're going to have sinful men and women in leadership. We always will. We're going to have evil men and women in leadership at times. But our role, quote unquote, our activity, quote unquote, is to pray for these people so that we can live out the Christian life in such a way with godliness and dignity and we can pray for people to be saved. That's a marvelous point, I think, often missed, Wayne. Excellent, Michael, and I certainly agree with that passage from First Timothy 2 and with your comments. That's what we should seek. And there, the question of promoting religious freedom and freedom of speech, 
is very important for this election. Mm-hmm. Threats to religious freedom are very serious. And some people say, well, a little persecution would be good for the church. I think that's a totally wrong idea. Jesus tells us we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're to pray that God deliver us from evil, not deliver us into evil and mm-hmm. into temptation. And then we could certainly say we've had a lot of persecution in the past 8, 10, 12 years for the local church. And you and I have both witnessed the change of mainline denomination, the change of even some of our friends who have completely capitulated on biblical authority. They've capitulated. They no longer teach the scripture. To me, it's a concern that starts at the seminary that many of the seminaries have lost their moorings. We're into all sorts of you know subtopics. We're not teaching exposition. We're not teaching biblical theology. We're not teaching critical thinking anymore. We're teaching cultural approbations, you know, how you social justice, all these kind of racial things, which are important topics. But again, unless you have a better way of articulating it, to me, it's moral relativism. We've taken lesser issues and made them the main issue. Yes, and Michael, to pick up on something that you said earlier, and I didn't pick up on it, the soft peddling or decision not to speak at all about the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is a worrisome trend. If it's unpopular in society and the Bible teaches it, then we have an obligation to teach it and be faithful in our teaching. And I think back to your analogy of the Trump sticker on your car. That's why I often encourage people, you can disagree. I will say, you know, be gentle, firm, kind, and smile. You don't have to be mad about these things. You can be gentle and firm and kind in the way you say them. I happen to disagree. I don't think you were made to be gay or transgender. I don't think that's the way God designed you. And I'm glad to talk about it, but I think scripture is clear. We were made in the image of God, male and female, and that's a non-negotiable. And can we talk about that? Again, it's a fascinating time to live in. It's in some respects, this is the day the Lord has made and you and I need to rejoice and be glad in it. But sometimes I got to work on the glad factor, Dr. Grimm. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and what you say is very relevant. James says the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God, is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, mm-hmm. impartial and sincere. And James says the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, but a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, yes, loving, kind, gracious, thoughtful advocacy of the Bible's teachings, but still refusal to compromise on what they say is what is needed in today's culture and society. Dr. Wayne Grudem, Research Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies at Phoenix Seminary. He holds degrees from Harvard, Westminster Seminary, Cambridge, 20-plus books and counting, probably closer to 50 articles on and on and on, a brother in Christ and a friend. Wayne, thank you for your time. So much appreciate it and praying for you and the way God continues to use you in remarkable ways, sir. It's fun to watch from the cheap seats to cheer you on. Thank you, Michael. It's been good to be with you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.